Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you both uh, to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. I'd like to thank our CHEST audience for joining us today for what will be a really interesting discussion on inhaler therapy and the gold guidelines for COPD. Today, we are fortunate to have Drs. Keller and Stefan as our guests, and we will be discussing uh, Dr. Keller's article entitled, Association of Guideline-Recommended COPD Inhaler Regimens with Mortality, Respiratory Exacerbations, and Quality of Life, a Secondary Analysis of the Long-Term Oxygen Treatment Trial. And we'll also be discussing the accompanying editorial by Dr. Stefan, entitled Editorial for the Secondary Analysis of uh, LOTT. So before we get started, uh, why don't we go ahead and have Dr. Keller introduce himself. Hello, uh, my name is Thomas Keller. I am a senior fellow in the Department of Medicine, the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Washington. Great to have you on the podcast with us, uh, Dr. Keller. And uh, we also have uh, Dr. Stefan. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Mihara Stefan. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'm a hospitalist and a healthcare researcher with the, and the goal of my research is to improve the outcome of patients with COPD. Great. It's an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast with us, Thomas and Mahela. So why don't we go ahead and get uh, started and maybe, um, uh, Dr. Stefan, you could set the stage for us. Maybe you could tell the audience why the goal guidelines are so important in the management of COPD. Sure. Um, I want to add that I'm also an implementation scientist, and one of my interests is really to examine why providers uh, do not follow guidelines in uh, in regular practice, and um, also to test strategies to increase the uptake of guidelines concordant care. So this study was of great interest to me. So coming up to the back to the gold guidelines, so many aspects of our practice are now controlled by guidelines. And although guidelines started to be applied in medical practice only some 15, 20 years ago, they are now found in almost all aspects of medical practices. In regards to the COPD, there are numerous guidelines for management of COPD. However, the most respected and used is the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, the GOLD guidelines. The aim of the GOLD report is to provide an unbiased review of the current evidence for the diagnosis and treatment of patients with COPD. It is important to mention that the GOLD report is revised annually and has been used worldwide by healthcare professionals as a strategy document tool to implement effective management programs. Strengths of the guidelines are the inclusion in the Committee of Healthcare Professionals experts from multiple disciplines and various countries, the rigorous appraisal of evidence, and again the revision being done annually based on the new evidence and feedback from users. So from my point of view, as someone who really values evidence, the fact that these are revisions annually is very important because it makes me trust the, the guidelines. 
However, the downside is that it can be challenging for the primary care physicians to be updated with the guidelines and apply them to their, to their practice. Uh, the guidelines were first published in 2001, and the latest major revisions were in 11 and 2017. And the latest one in 2007 separates the airflow limitation from clinical parameters and acknowledges the limitation of FEV1 in influencing therapeutic decisions for individual patients and highlights the importance of patient symptoms and exacerbation risks. And the pharmacological management of stable COPD is now based on a tailored on, on and tailored to the four ABCD patient groups with the goal of relieving symptoms, improving health status, and preventing exacerbations. And I'll end this section saying that we assume that the implementation of the GOAT guidelines has led to better standardization of management and possible better care of patients with this condition. Still, there are several studies, including this one, that have shown that clinical adherence to the GOAT guidelines is relatively poor. But we know very little about um, if the adherence to the guidelines is associated with clinical outcomes. And this is where uh, this study comes in. Great. And I think you've, uh, we're very fortunate to have you on this podcast with us as an implementation scientist. So let's turn to uh, Dr. Keller. So, uh, Thomas, maybe you could tell us why you performed your study and what its main objectives Yes, yeah, so as Dr. Stefan pointed out, the GOLD guidelines are probably the most widely recognized strategy for the diagnosis and management of COPD. Um, and as Dr. Stefan also said, they incorporate really important evidence from randomized controlled trials to guide treatment recommendations. Um, one challenge, though, is that these trials were predominantly done among patients with high symptom burden and frequent respiratory exacerbations, or what the gold statements would, would classify as gold group D patients. However, nearly 70% of patients with COPD would not have met the inclusion criteria of these trials. Um, and in order to address this, the gold statements incorporate additional data from observational studies that describe the risk factors for future exacerbations and death. Um, the 2017 GOLD strategy in, in creating the recommendations says that all patients with symptoms receive a long-acting inhaled bronchodilator, and it only recommends that patients who receive, uh, who have frequent exacerbations receive uh, inhaled corticosteroids. Um, this strategy hasn't been tested, um, and it was unclear if providing treatment according to these recommendations would improve outcomes. So we wanted to do exactly that. We wanted to test the effectiveness of providing inhaled treatment according to the 2017 GOLD statement compared to regimens that would under-treat. And then we also wanted to see if patients who are potentially over-treated with inhaled corticosteroids would have a higher risk of pneumonia. Gotcha. And so how did you go about performing your study? And uh, what previous studies did you use to inform the design of your study? Yes, so um, we conducted a secondary analysis of the long-term oxygen treatment trial. Um, 
This was a cohort of patients aged greater than or equal to 40 years um, with COPD and moderate resting, which we define as uh, uh, pulse oximetry oxygen saturation of 88 to 92% or exercise-induced hypoxemia um, or low oxygen levels. Um, the trial was conducted from 2009 through 2015 and ultimately enrolled 738 patients. And then with this cohort, we used the 2017 gold statement to categorize each patient's um, COPD severity according to the gold groups, so groups A through D, um, with group A being patients who have little symptoms and have not had very many exacerbations, have had no exacerbations, and then group D being patients who have high symptoms and frequent exacerbations. And then after we classified patients' disease severity, we then categorized patients' inhaled regimens that they were reporting at enrollment as either aligning with the 2017 gold statement, under-treating, or potentially over-treating. Um, and these categories served as our primary exposure. Um, and then using this exposure, we evaluated the association of receiving um, an inhaled regimen that aligned with the recommendations to the composite outcome of death or hospitalization for COPD. We also looked at outcomes including any moderate or severe COPD exacerbation, exercise performance, and then quality of life. In addition, among a small subgroup of patients, the, the, 2000, the 2017 gold statement would consider low risk for future exacerbations and without an indication for inhaled corticosteroids, the so-called um, group A or B patients. We also looked at the association of potential overtreatment with inhaled corticosteroids and pneumonia. Um, compared to prior studies on the topic, um, the most recent was a study by um, Jockman and colleagues out of Switzerland. Um, and compared to that study, uh, our study was the first to look at the 2017 gold statements. Their study looked at um, adherence to the 2011 gold statements. Um, and compared to that study, we had much better uh, data in terms of be actually being able to diagnose COPD. All of the patients in our study had spirometry, um, and we had really good data on uh, outcomes for all of our patients. 97% uh, of our cohort had hospitalization data. All of our cohort had um, data for mortality. And then we also had excellent ascertainment of exercise performance as measured by a six-minute walk test and disease-specific quality of life as measured by the St. George Respiratory Questionnaire. Great. I think you've given us a, a great background to your study. So let's dive into your findings. So what did you find, uh, Thomas? So using the 2017 gold statement, we judged most patients to be in the 2017 gold group B, approximately 55%. 
Um, as, as Dr. Stefan pointed out, um, you know, most patients in our study consistent with other um, findings compared to the 2011 statement um, were reclassified from gold group D, or sorry, gold group C, D to gold groups A and B um, because of the way that the guidelines were written um, and the removal of the airflow obstruction from the disease severity classification. Um, and because of this, the we found that most patients were actually potentially over-treated, nearly 55%. Um, and that's because the most commonly reported inhaled regimen in our study was the combination of a long-acting beta agonist, a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, and an, and an inhaled corticosteroid, or the quote-unquote triple therapy, with nearly 43% of patients reporting this triple therapy. And then many patients also reported using a combination of a long-acting beta agonist and an inhaled corticosteroid. About 21% used that. And for that reason, only 32% of the patients in our study um, received inhaled treatment that aligned with the 2017 GOLD recommendations. When we looked at our primary outcome of hospitalization or death, Patients whose regimens aligned with the 2017 gold recommendations compared to those who were undertreated, we found no significant difference in, the, in their experiencing the outcome. Similarly, exercise performance and quality of life, um, we found no significant difference between groups. Interestingly, among patients that we classified as low risk for future exacerbations, the gold group A or B patients, we found that potential overtreatment was associated with a 42% higher risk of having a COPD exacerbation and was also associated with a 64% higher risk of pneumonia when compared to regimens that aligned with the 2017 recommendations. So those are pretty interesting findings, uh, uh, Thomas. So maybe you could briefly give us your interpretation of them, and then we'll turn to uh, Dr. Stefan and ask her her opinion. Uh, so, Thomas, what was your interpretation? Our findings would suggest that at least among a cohort of patients with moderate resting or exertional hypoxemia, that providing the inhaled treatment according to the 2017 statement provides little benefit compared with regimens that undertreat. And it's not entirely clear to us why we found this. Um, it's possible that the treatment recommendations within each disease severity group in the 2017 statement are overly broad, and it's possible that narrowing the recommendations, so for example, at least dual long-acting beta agonist, long-acting muscarinic antagonist therapy for patients with frequent exacerbations might improve outcomes. It's also possible, however, that the disease severity assessment does not adequately predict each patient's risk of future exacerbations. It's possible that the providers who provided treatment for patients in 
a lot may have recognized additional characteristics not captured by the 2017 framework and either escalated or de-escalated inhaled treatment accordingly. Got you. So, um, Dr. Stefan, maybe you could uh, dive in and tell us what findings have struck you and how you interpreted uh, them. For me, that's the, the over-treatment is uh, pretty interesting and the reason for that. So, uh, Dr. Stefan? Sure. Thank you. So, um, I know that Thomas already spoke a little about that, but something that I struggle a little bit to understand when I... Um, when I read the study was the use of the 2017 guidelines for patients enrolled in 2008 till 2014. So how this act in the way we interpret the results, um, it's a little bit tricky for me. So, and again, coming to what was mentioned that when you classify the patient by the 2017 guidelines, 77% are in the low risk and only 23% in the high risk, but in, when you use the 2011, it really flips. Is 28% in the low risk and 70% in the high risk. And the alignment with the guidelines is also very different. It's 32% for the 2017 guidelines and 66% for the 2011 guidelines. So when I'm thinking of interpret, uh, the interpretation of the results, I'm not sure if I can say that in, if we would have examined patients treated in 2019 in accordance with the guidelines in 2017, these results will stand. So this would be something that I will cautious us to, to, to reflect on when we think of the results of the study. Something else that um, I, um, I want to bring up and maybe we'll discuss more in the limitation is about this cohort, and um, and Dr. Keller also mentioned that this is not a real-life population, right? So this is a population who was enrolled in a trial, and they have some hypoxemia at baseline. But most important for me, these are patients who are treated by pulmonologists. These are not patients treated by the primary care. So the way I interpret the results is that the primary care generally sends the patient to the pulmonary clinic when they cannot manage that patient well. So that these are the majority of the patient that will be sent. Either the patient is still symptomatic despite the treatment being given, either the patient has some exacerbation, more exacerbation that um, they can manage or they were sent directly from the, uh, the discharge of the hospitals. So it is possible that the pulmonologist, when they've seen the patient who didn't have the symptoms controlled, they felt that they needed to add something else, that like the ICS. And the reason was, other than the severity of airflow limitation or exacerbation risk, it's possible that they try to personalize care because of the individual patient needs and comorbidities. So in a way, I think it might be more like confounding by indication what we see. So the patients who are over-treated are those patients who are at high risk of exacerbation, at least were perceived as high risk of exacerbation and were still symptomatic. And those who are under-treated are patients who indeed had less symptoms and as such, maybe the treatment was de-escalated. 
So those are really important uh, points you mentioned, uh, Dr. Stefan. Uh, so Dr. Keller, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to that. Um, so maybe first you can deal with the issue of uh, which guidelines to use. Um, Dr. Stefan raises a pretty important point that uh, use the 2017 guidelines for patients that were treated prior to that. Um, so what is your response to that? And do you have any data and outcomes for uh, those patients using the previous guidelines? Yes, yeah, so um, we chose to use the 2017 gold recommendations primarily because they are um, at least until the most recent um, publication in 2020, they were the um, latest update to the major update to the, the gold statements. Um, and as we previously talked about the the main change was removing the severity of airflow obstruction from the classification of disease severity. Um, we felt that it was reasonable to use the 2017 recommendations because we were not trying to assess um, individual provider practice patterns, um, and we weren't trying to assess adherence, so to speak. We were trying to just test the recommendations outright. Um, but Dr. Stefan brought up a good point that um, patients were treated according to the 2011 and in some cases maybe even the 2007 um, statements in our study. And that likely explains why patients were given inhaled corticosteroids, even though they were classified as gold group B in our study. Um, however, we did look to see if the severity of airflow obstruction made a difference in terms of our findings. And we reclassified all of the patients in our study according to the 2011 statements and our findings were essentially unchanged. Um, when we classified patients according to the 2011 gold statement instead of the 2017 statement, we still found that patients who were potentially over-treated um, with inhaled corticosteroids in the gold group A and B um, category for 2011 had a higher exacerbation risk. Um, in addition, we then found that patients in gold group C or D who were um, uh, sort of in that same category, the gold group C patients being overtreated there, also had a higher exacerbation risk. So as Dr. Stefan pointed out, I, I suspect that it wasn't the, the guidelines per se. The, I don't think that the potential misclassification of the patients because of the categorization of the, their disease severity according to the 2017 statement compared to the 2011 statement really explains our findings. I, I think that it is something else about these patients that place them at higher risk for uh, respiratory exacerbation. Um, which is why they ended up being overtreated, according to both guidelines. 
Okay, Dr. Stefan, I'll give you a chance to respond to that. No, I like the explanation, and um, I, I I thought about that. It it's still hard to explain why the low risk patients uh, who are over treated with ICS were at high risk uh, for exacerbation. It is counterintuitive, right? Because the main therapeutic benefit of the ICS in COPD is to reduce exacerbation. So this is where I thought that maybe there is some misclassification in the sense of low risk, not necessary because of the guidelines. I understand the, the argument, but, be, but because they were still symptomatic, and this is where, why maybe they were appropriately treated with um, ICS. Thank you. Yeah, so Dr. Keller, so I mean, it's, so there appears to be this anomaly in your findings. So you've had some time to think about this. So why do you think uh, it appears that the ones having increased exacerbations are getting so-called overtreated? As Dr. Stefan pointed out, I think it's probably that the treating physicians in the LOT trial recognized factors about those gold group B patients and escalated treatment appropriately. And those patients were actually at higher risk for having exacerbations than the gold statement would suggest they would be. Um, and, and that acknowledges one of the challenges of using the, the gold statement the way that it currently is. Um, it is meant to be easily applied and easy for practitioners to use in clinical practice. And because of that, it doesn't necessarily capture all of the risk factors for having exacerbations and doesn't necessarily capture the patient that's in front of you um, when you see them in clinic. So um, I, I think that um, it helps us to recognize that if somebody is coming to our clinic and is very short of breath despite their treatment and is having exacerbations despite their treatment, that we need to be doing something different and maybe not necessarily should be following the current recommendations. Okay, so from both of you, oh, sure. Go ahead, Dr. Stefan. I just think that another factor might be these patients were on oxygen, either because they're hypoxemic at rest or with activity, and it's possible that in the mind of the provider, this already put the patient in a class of risk that was not the AB where they might have been just because they are on oxygen. And in general, we consider these patients that are more advanced in their disease. And, of course, we don't know what the physician thought, but that might be another factor contributing to the thinking that they are sicker than if you apply the, the gold classification. Thank you. 
Okay. So from both of you, I'm getting the impression that um, we've got these group of patients who are uh, labeled over-treatment, but it may be that, in fact, they were actually appropriately treated because the physician identified some factor that hasn't been captured by the data. Um, Dr. Stefan, uh, were there any other findings um, in this study that uh, perked your interest um, that you wanted to uh, discuss with the audience? Um, no, not not necessary. I think we'll go in the interpretation and limitations still, right? So I would have sure, yeah, um, okay. Oh, sure. Um, so in, I wanted to ask... The findings, um, yeah. Okay, great. So let's go into the um, limitations then. Uh, Dr. Um, Keller, maybe you could just go ahead and uh, list the limitations that you have in the study, and then I'll turn to Dr. Stefan. Yeah, Dr. Stefan um, pointed out some important limitations of our study. Um, we had a relatively narrow study population, um, and it is difficult for us to say that we can apply our findings to the entire population of patients with COPD. As Dr. Stefan pointed out, all patients in our study had some degree of, of hypoxemia, and all of the patients received care by a pulmonary provider. Um, so uh, it's likely that these patients differ systematically from the overall general population of patients with COPD. Um, in addition, every patient in our study had spirometry performed, which is certainly not the case for a large percentage of patients who are diagnosed clinically with COPD and who are treated according to the GOLD recommendations. Um, this was also an observational study, as we pointed out, and should be interpreted accordingly. Um, we talked about confounding and one important type of confounding being confounding by indication, but we did not see the true indication in our data for why patients were on the inhaled therapies that they were on and that our inability to account for that, those factors um, may have influenced our results. Um, and then I think another important thing that we didn't talk about previously is that um, we had to use a modified definition of um, future exacerbation risk, and that had to do with the way that the clinical trial lot um, collected their data. Um, we had to use a, only three months of exacerbation data prior to enrollment, whereas the gold statement would have used a full year um, uh, and thus, we may have ended up misclassifying patients as low risk, even though they had frequent exacerbations before that three-month period. And the gold statement would have, in reality, classified them as high risk for future exacerbations. Although I will say to that point that when we look at the distribution of disease severity and inhaled regimens in our study, it matches with other um, studies from the COPD gene cohorts and um, spiromics, um, uh, and I suspect that we did capture what the 2017 statement would have classified our patients as correctly. 
Peter, those are pretty useful limitations that you listed, uh, Dr. Stefan. Sure. So Dr. Keller listed a lot of them. So for me, uh, the main limitations come from the cohort, right? And um, Thomas already listed the main um, issues with that. So these are patients who uh, were part of a clinical trial, and we know that patients who enroll in clinical trials are different from the start from those who do not um, in different ways. And um, um, so in addition to what he mentioned, another criteria to be in the study was that the patient should have not have an exacerbation requiring new prescription of antibiotics or increased prescription of systemic corticosteroids in the 30 days prior to screening. And we know that for these patients, they have a high rate of readmissions at 30 days. So an important uh, proportion of patients were uh, excluded for the study. In addition, um, the other limitations are related to the fixed sample size and the lack of power calculation for the study. And it is possible that it will require a larger sample size to have meaningful uh, findings. Uh, finally, there are many things that we do not know about these patients that may determine whether that therapy translates to improved clinical outcomes, such as patient adherence to medication, their inhaler techniques, um, and potentially matching the delivery devices with patients' uh, respiratory flow rate. But these are limitations. I want to point uh, to the strength of the studies because there are many. This is, again, a cohort where all patients had spirometry. The exposure and outcomes were very accurately identified following the structure of the trial. The analyses were very rigorous, and uh, the findings were consistent across a number of sensitivity analyses. And most importantly, challenges the assumption that if we followed closely the guidelines, the outcomes will improve. Okay, those are pretty useful to mention, the strengths and the limitations. Did you agree with those limitations, uh, Dr. Keller, that Dr. Stefan mentioned? Yes, and, um, and uh, we acknowledge that this is a fixed sample size and a relatively small sample. The, the main reason that we included mortality in our study was to account for the competing risk of death um, in terms of hospitalizations and exacerbations. Um, I would not have expected, given our sample size and given randomized controlled trials, to have found a significant difference in mortality, to be honest, um, because we have never been able to show, except in um, the most recent studies, that there um, is a mortality benefit to inhaled therapy. Okay, so to answer its pressure on that, um, if you didn't expect to find a difference, uh, why did you include it? it? It was to account for the competing risk of death. If you had died um, before, you could potentially have a COPD exacerbation, um, and we did not include death as an outcome, um, we would have not have captured um, that poor outcome. So let's move on to what the study means for um uh, for practice. So, uh, Dr. Keller, uh, what did you take away from the findings of your study and how does it advance uh, our understanding of COPD? 
So although our study calls into question the effectiveness of the 2017 gold recommendations, based on the results of our study alone, we would not recommend a change in clinical practice yet. Um, Additional studies in broader populations are needed to truly determine whether the guideline recommendations are effective or not. At the same time, we feel that our study raises awareness that as a community, we need to do better to understand individual patient risk and how to translate that into personalization of treatment recommendations. Great. And Dr. Stefan, I want to ask you um, how you think the study advances our understanding. And in part of your answer, I'm hoping that you could address this issue of personalized care versus guidelines, um, because it seems that at times they're at odds where uh, patients should receive guideline care, but sometimes that compromises their individual care uh, and vice versa. Yeah, sure. So I I agree with Dr. Keller that... um the results of the study should not change our practice, and I just want to reiterate the fact that we do not know if the results we stand for patients treated in 2019 based on the guidelines from 2017, so it's a pretty uh, large gap between um, the study when the study was completed and uh, 2020. Um, I think that the study supports the recommendation that inhaled steroids, especially in patients at low risk, are harmful, which now is a grade A evidence in the 2019 guidelines. The study raised an important issue of the implementation of guidelines in clinical outcomes in real world, and maybe a rigorous study which compared strict adherence to the guidelines to usual care may be the next step in answering this question. So, an implementation study where you help the providers, you nudge the providers to be more consistent with the guidelines will give a better answer to this question. Now, in regards to personalizing the treatment for the patients, I think the the guidelines, the most recent guidelines, um, is making um, a a change in this direction because uh, following the feedback from the users, the committee identified that there was a misinterpretation regarding the use of the ABCD system, and now they separate the initial treatment based on ABCD uh, from the follow-up treatment based on the patient's major treatable traits and the currently used drugs. So this is something else where we may think that the study wasn't able to do an appropriate assessment because these patients were, in fact, seen by the pulmonologist not for the initial management but for the follow-up. And maybe the pulmonologist already did what the guidelines now recommend in the sense of upping the treatment or or, um, uh, taking away some treatments. In addition, um, the new guidelines introduce the blood eosinophil count as a biomarker for estimating the efficacy of inhaled corticosteroids. So there is already this attempt to personalize the treatment um, in the follow-up. And uh, this is where I think we, we should help the providers um, um, know about the guidelines and apply them. 
So I want to also ask you a question about a statement that you made earlier at the, in, during this podcast, and you raised the question of why do clinicians not follow guidelines? Maybe you could answer that for us uh, based on what you've seen in this study um, and uh, whether it's do we have just have clinicians who are rebelling against the guidelines or because just not capturing? Yeah, that's um, that's not only for the COPD gold guidelines, of course, that's and true. Um, yeah. but but what we see here is about the knowledge and attitude. Maybe um, do primary care do even pulmonologists? I, I presume they know the guidelines in a way. Is it their attitude toward the guidelines? Do they trust it when they have the patient, the individual patient, because? We as providers, we agree with the guidelines in general, but when we treat the particular patient, we always find a reason to say that our patient is different and it's hard to apply the guidelines to the patient in front of us. Another reason is this problem of the COPD and asthma overlap, which by now the new guidelines took away that uh, this classification, but I assume that the use of the steroid is somehow a remnant of the, this COPD asthma and thinking that patients maybe have some asthma and then steroids would be useful. And um, lastly, um, another reason not following the guidelines is this belief about consequences, that at the time when we give the treatment that is not in accordance with the guidelines, for that individual patient, we don't think of the long-term consequences because we don't see it. We know that there is a risk for the pneumonia, but for that patient, we don't see it. So that might be some reason that uh, physicians in this case uh, deviate from the guidelines. Well, that's pretty useful to know. So, um, Doctors Keller and Stefan, we're getting to uh, the close of the podcast. And before we uh, finish it up, I want to give each of you a chance just to um, leave a last message, a word with our audience, you know, something that we haven't covered through the podcast or something that you wanted to highlight um, from what you learned uh, in your paper. Um, I'll start with Dr. Keller, and then I'll end with uh, Dr. Stefan. Uh, Dr. Keller? As Dr. Stefan pointed out, I think one main take-home for me would be that um, we need to, as a community, come together and study this question more. And perhaps an implementation study is the next best step. And, um, you know, I, I think that future work should try to figure out if there is a difference between um, new users and and um, the patients who are receiving escalated treatment in terms of adherence to these guidelines, and um, you know, in, until we can really say that following the guidelines for individual patients leads to better outcomes, the best thing to do may be to personalized treatment for the patient you are seeing in front of you. Thank you, Dr. Keller. And Dr. Stefan, you have the last word. All right. So I, um, I think that we believe in guidelines and 
in in the gold guidelines there is evidence behind and I am still at odds of um, believing that applying the guidelines will not be associated with the outcomes. I agree that we need better studies, but I also think that we we, we need to help the providers to, to treat the patient in accordance with the guidelines in the sense that they need to classify the patients. And I, I know that it seems easy to do that, but to have the patient complete the MRC or the CAT, it's, it's not that an easy thing for the 15-minute interaction. So I think we have, to, we have to have a better and smarter way to nudge providers toward um, complying with the guidelines before throwing them away. Gotcha. So hopefully we can nudge our providers to do what's right. Um, I'd like to give a very big thank you to Drs. Keller and Stefan for a great conversation and a very big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominique Pepper and this is a chess podcast.